Hello and welcome to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. I'm your host, Jack Aldane. On this episode, I'll be speaking to Adrian Pabst, Professor of Politics at the University of Kent, about his new book, Post-Liberal Politics. Adrian, how are you? I'm all right, how are you? This is very interesting. You know who I sit with at this very table? Who? Patrick Demean. Really? That's one of the reasons why I chose this place. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to be here in Balthazar on Russell Street, Covent Garden, with Professor of Politics at the University of Kent and Deputy Director at the Institute for Economic and Social Research, Adrian Pabst, author of Post-Liberal Politics, the book we'll be discussing this evening. Adrian? Absolute pleasure to have you here. How are you? Oh, very well. Thank you, Jack. It's a real pleasure to be with you, and thanks so much for the invitation. It's customary for me to ask why each author who joins me for the Booking Club chose the place that they chose. Why have you chosen Balthazar? Balthazar reminds me very much of my time in Paris, uh, where I spent three wonderful years. And um, I suppose it was really an introduction to how important French politics and culture is for the West, uh, I think for Britain as well, even after Brexit, and perhaps especially after Brexit, and also why in some ways the world was never fully liberal, uh, the Western world that is, and um, you know, I think France also may show us the way you know, out of the worst of liberalism towards something I suppose I would call post-liberal, that is, you know, economically radical, not wedded to a kind of free market fundamentalism, but socially moderate, you know, uh, much more tolerant than what liberalism has become, very compatible and indeed very much cherishing a Catholic legacy, but also, you know, open to the rest of Europe and the world. So for me, my years in Paris and France were very formative. Balthazar is sort of very much a way of reliving some of this while I'm in London. The restaurant's one thing and the book is another, but you've managed to marry them in the first answer really well. I've said nothing about the food, so I'm not sure whether that you know, is a good or, or a bad reflection on, on uh, my appreciation of the restaurant. I think the food happens to be very good too. I won't start by asking you for a definition of post-liberalism. I hope that is something that we can arrive at over the course of this conversation and that those listening who've never heard of this term can come away knowing at least what it isn't, and why the idea of a post-liberal politics is something worth striving for. Perhaps the place to start is to ask why we need a term like post-liberalism to begin with. Why the suggestion that we move past liberalism? Can't we just stay and fix it? No, I don't think we can, and that's because liberalism is both theoretically and practically flawed. It isn't just a matter of political philosophy or theory or indeed, you know, the theological reasons why liberalism might be very questionable. It's also that we now see, if I may coin uh, a term, that really existing liberalism doesn't work. It doesn't work for most human beings. It doesn't work for most societies. It doesn't work for the wider West and indeed, you know, the rest of the world. And that's not to say that liberalism doesn't have some achievements. It does. It has certainly given us a number of institutions, you know, such as perhaps the free press, and, you know, a strengthening of the rule of law in some respects, a greater access to justice, you know, where liberalism has fostered popular democracy or participation in democratic 
institutions. But, you know, a lot of the achievements that we often associate with liberalism actually don't come from liberalism per se. So, you know, the fundamental freedoms, free inquiry, free speech, freedom of association, freedom of religion, these were not invented by liberalism. They came from antiquity in the Middle Ages and liberalism inherited them and has perhaps added to them in some respects, but has also threatened some of them, as we can now see. You know, in these endless fights, for instance, between transgender activists and feminists, we see that if you're going for ever more individual rights, at some point, rights will clash. And when individual rights clash, it's power that decides. And the power is that of a, of a liberal or proto-liberal state already imagined by, you know, by Bourdin, by Hobbes, by Locke, where really the sovereign state decides whose rights will prevail. So that's sort of satisfactory situation because A, it doesn't really respect everyone's dignity and it doesn't really account for duties or obligations. So we have to learn from that and build a much more robust, you know, new covenant going forward. And that's, I think, the challenge for us. And that's why we are looking not so much to repair liberalism or indeed to roll it back, but rather to go beyond, which means some of the achievements, of course, have to be preserved. But we have to be very clear about what isn't working and what needs to be done completely differently. Well, we'll get on to the extent to which post-liberalism does roll back liberalism, because, of course, it is about setting limits on the excesses of ultra-individualism that you mentioned, the idea of ultra-self-interest. Are we all post-liberals now? Um, no. Um, there are clearly still people who are wedded to either economic liberalism or social liberalism, or indeed both, and that's true for political parties as well as voters. But I think it's a, if you like, shrinking minority. I don't think we could honestly say that a majority of people are somehow naturally liberals or, or even politically because liberal parties or those that have defended variants of liberalism have uh, lost a lot of elections in recent years. Um, it's also the case, I think, instinctively, if you like, almost by nature, people aren't sort of, you know, liberal or conservative or socialist. I mean, these are ideologies and we mustn't forget that there is a much more fundamental anthropology that I think can't really be captured by any of those traditions. And what, what is that fundamental anthropology? Right, so, you know, we are social political beings, first and foremost, meaning what? That we're not isolated individuals, and nor are we sort of cogs in the collective will, right? We are very much dependent on relationships, dependent on institutions, and mutual dependency also means a greater degree of reciprocity rather than domination by some over others or exploitation, you know, of many by, by, by the few. And so in that sense, anthropologically, you know, we are not only social and political beings in the way Aristotle already argued, but also, you know, and I think this is part of the, the huge contribution of Christianity, but also other faith traditions. We are, in fact, gift-exchanging animals. You know, we give, receive, and return gifts. Language is a gift. You know, all sorts of things, friendship, you know, all the immaterial things, but also some of the material things are gifts. And, and we are also storytelling animals. Mm. You know, we live by the stories we tell ourselves and each other, right? The collective memories that bind societies together. So for all those reasons, we are not sort of born conservative, socialist or liberal. However, I think there's a small C conservatism in many people, you know, kind of concern for inheritance, tradition, family. There's a kind of, if you like, a small S socialism. You know, we really believe that radical equality matters, that all human beings are or should be equal and there can't be differences of status based on, you know, birth or wealth or anything like this. And I suppose there's a small L liberalism, which is that of, instance, the rule of law, you know, fair play. We don't want people to be playing by different rules. And we saw this with COVID. When, you know, anyone, whether it's ordinary people in our neighborhood or, you know, certain elites broke, you know, lockdown rules, people got very angry. 
you know, so a small C conservatism, a small S socialism, a small L liberalism is probably in all of us in different degrees. But that doesn't mean that one ideology, you know, automatically takes precedence and certainly not liberalism. So in his book, Post-Liberalism, Recovering a Shared World, Fred Dalmayer quotes the introduction of a book that you published with the theologian and poet John Milbank in 2016. Post-liberalism heralds a new constellation which substitutes the dominance of the market, state and technocracy for the primacy of society, culture and interpersonal relations. Discarding the notion of the political social animal, modern liberalism, today in a state of metacrisis, replace them with the self-centered pursuit of wealth, power and pleasure, which debases the nature of humanity. Kind of nicely sums up a lot of what you were saying there. And as you argue in your book, we're being sold polarities in political debate at present. Liberalism versus conservatism, internationalism versus national populism, libertarianism versus authoritarianism. But in reality, all tend to overlap with each other at some point so that liberals don't notice their own logic in supposedly illiberal political movements and supporters of those movements don't see their liberal prejudices at play either. Could you unpack that a bit and say why you think a truly post-liberal politics would avoid the same overlap of ideologies? I think one of the first thinkers in the sort of why the Western civilization, I suppose, was, you know, who identified the sort of coincidence of, of apparent opposites was Dostoevsky, you know, who very famously in his, in his novel, you know, The Devils, describes this, you know, incredible character who, you know, ends up saying, well, look, I started with unfettered freedom and I ended total tyranny. And why is that? Because the moment anyone assumes that we are totally free to decide not just, you know, what we're going to order for dinner or where we're going to work, but, you know, who we are and what makes us human, we are essentially stripping ourselves of all the kind of constraints on human choice and power and will. And then ultimately it will be the strongest, the wealthiest, the most powerful the one with the greatest willpower who will prevail because there's no mediation of, of individual choice or agency. And we could go through all the ideologies and essentially point out similar coincidence or, or, or you know, similar sort of convergence. And I think post-liberalism avoids this because it doesn't deal in binaries. You know, it doesn't say we have to choose between the individual or the collective or the state or the market or left or right or any binary we wish to consider, including nature, culture, uh, imminence, transcendence, you know, in any dualism that is very much sort of a legacy of, of the modern. You know, so I don't think it's, it's all that surprising that we've ended up in this situation. Uh, whereas I think if we really put the emphasis on the dignity of the person, on intermediary institutions, on a state that is plural and upholds free spaces for association, right, and, and, and a more mutualist market and a more internationalist system, we can bring out much better things than the extremes that we've seen in recent decades. So looking at the menu then, on the hors d'oeuvres, what takes your fancy? I suppose I'm torn between the, um, the escargot and the, uh, and the steak tartare, but since I'm, I was thinking of having a steak later on, I might be overdoing it, so I'm going to go with the escargot. Escargot for me too. Both heavy hitters, the escargot and steak tartare. Very difficult to resist. In the book, you resolutely reject this convenient phrase that's been trotted out of the winning formula to a post-global politics being to turn left on economics and right on culture. It might well fit into the character limit of Twitter to repeat this phrase to make a point, but you say that's fundamentally a specious way of talking about what needs to be done. 
Well, if we believe in a politics that isn't defined by left and right, then I don't think we should start by thinking of post-liberalism as, you know, some kind of uh, combination of the two. I would prefer to say that post-liberalism is economically radical, meaning a radical transformation of capitalism in the direction of a social market, of a more mutual market. And I think it's socially moderate, by which I mean it's neither kind of ultra-progressive uh, and individualistic and concerned with rights, you know, without obligations or duties, nor is it potentially reactionary authoritarian. We know when people say, oh, Boris Johnson has hit on something because he's now left on the economy and, uh, and right on culture, well, to which we could say, well, perhaps, except left on the economy could mean furlough is the way to get through COVID, but it's not fixing the labor market. Right? Throwing money at social care is not fixing the question of how we provide the care, who does it in a re more relational, humane way. And right on culture, I mean, if that means fighting culture wars on US norms, then I don't think that's going to unify the country. Boris Johnson's speech at the Conservative Party conference last week was characteristically low on content, big on the usual rhetorical flourishes, lots of wistful callbacks to English cultural heritage, linguistic acrobats, sort of boisterous badinage. Businesses did not take this well. They wanted less spirited showmanship, more protective pledges, more assurances about supply chains, the pandemic and so on. In the end, it seems to me Johnson really only succeeded in not making it all about business. This is not the post-liberalism you write about, is it? So I wouldn't rule out the possibility that this moves in a post-liberal direction. Uh, and it's not so much that I, you know, my hopes are sort of, you know, defined by what Johnson says at the party conference. It's much more that I think the leveling up department, headed by Michael Gove, uh, with Neil O'Brien and uh, Danny Kruger, but also, uh, you know, the task force led by Andy Day, that could come up with a serious program for, I think, national and regional renewal. If that's the case, and if that program were to be implemented, even only partly out of the next election, I could see conservative domination turning into hegemony. But as you can you know, tell from how I'm phrasing this, these are very big ifs. Because A, there may not be a coherent program. B, the coherent program may not get you know, number 10's favor. And let's not forget that the Tory party, like all political parties, is riven by division. So how will the economic liberals or the libertarians react to such a program? You know, how can the treasury be brought on board? Right? But also, you know, will uh, you know, the various conservative interests, including big business, stand by as perhaps you know, some of their vested interests are now you know, seriously in question? These are all open questions, and I, I'm not sure you know, that so far the conservative government has got a coherent answer. But I think that particular levelling up department has probably the most serious political minds. And therefore, I would not you know, discount the possibility. Yeah, it's a very fragile thing. And I mean, it, it seems that the level to which leaders are able to articulate these ideas that signal a departure from the way things have worked in the past is still really very poor. I mean, given that the post-liberal vision, as you've sort of alluded to there, belongs to whichever party can be the first to properly understand and harness it, what would you urge either of the two main UK party leaders, Boris Johnson or Keir Starmer, to get to grips with as soon as possible? I think the country faces a, a, such a deep malaise because it not only you know, has an economic uh, and, a, and a political model that are deeply dysfunctional, but it also genuinely lacks a sense of 
direction. You know, where is Britain in the you know, mid-21st century going? And the governments that have been hegemonic in the past have usually been the, the governments that have been able to tell a story that weaves together the past, the present and the future. You know, where we've come from, where we now are and where we're going. You know, that was true for Adley, who on the base of the war experience said this is what we're going to do after the war to rebuild, to reconcile with former foes and to, you know, build security. That was true for, you know, Macmillan, I think, later on after Churchill. It was also true for Wilson and for Blair and certainly in between for Thatcher. So it is about offering the country a new covenant. You know, sort of a, a, a sense of how the generations, you know, can live together. But concretely, what that means is tackling the endemic problems, which are state centralization and crony capitalism. They're the things that have essentially held Britain back. They're the things that have undermined a sense of belonging, uh, a sense of human flourishing where people are, a sense of actually the nation really pulling together. Right? And if you know, any political party can tackle state centralization and crony capitalism, I think we're going to go a long way. You call this current Johnsonian government a sort of alliance between middle-class conservatives and blue labor workers. What role does blue labor have in founding a, a post-liberal politics? In fact, for those who may not know what blue labor is, perhaps you could explain that. So blue labor is something that emerged at the uh, sort of tail end of the new labor government and also really at the time of the financial crisis. And blue labor is genuinely paradoxical, which is the politics we need. And it's paradoxical because, of course, we associate the color red with labor and the color blue with conservatives. But the blue in blue labor is not somehow the blue of the Tories. It's the blue of grief and loss for the things we've lost, you know, the economic system that's no longer generating shared prosperity, the culture that's no longer giving everyone a sense of respect, a role, you know, a valuing of vocation. Uh, it's the, the loss of social cohesion you know, of vibrant communities and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but it's also uh, the blue of the sea. Britain is an island surrounded by the sea and that is, you know, a, a very important part of its identity that we, you know, we trade, but we also have deep social cultural ties across the seas, you know, with uh, other parts of, of the world, you know, from the Commonwealth and and so on. And, and it's finally also the blue of moderation as opposed to the, the red of revolution. Right, so that's what Blue Labour is. And it's definitely not the glib formula, family, faith and flag, something that was never used by any Blue Labour thinker. That you mentioned Blue Labour was a paradoxical politics. In fact, post-liberalism, as you write in the book, is by definition a paradoxical politics, which if done correctly would preserve personal freedom for each by building solidarity around the common good. For some, that will sound not just paradoxical, but plainly contradictory. In modern society, people feel they're freest and define freedom by the absence of obligations to others. So how does the paradox resolve itself enough that we can conceivably redefine freedom, even though we are a society that has come to see freedom as basically being left alone? I think for both Blue Labour and the sort of post-liberal politics that I'm developing in the book, you know, no single principle can somehow override all others. So, yes, of course, freedom is an incredibly precious gift. And, you know, there's so many periods in human history where individual freedoms were trampled upon, people oppressed, exploited, denied their most fundamental dignity and, and, and their liberty. And so, you know, we, we can't stress enough how precious a gift freedom is. 
But then something similar applies to equality, the radical equality of all human beings, you know, irrespective of birth, irrespective of, of color, irrespective of any creed, class, and so on. Uh, and, and, and again, the same would be true for something like fraternity, that, you know, we recognize that fraternity is an incredibly important principle for societies actually to flourish, for everyone to have their place to be respected and, and so on. And so what, what that means for freedom is it has to be a freedom that also respects equality and that also is a fraternal social freedom. That is to say, a freedom where we're not just free from, yes, from oppression, yes, from exploitation, but also where there's a sense of freedom for. For what? For, for instance, greater cohesion, greater, you know, mutual, uh, peaceful coexistence. And that means that freedom has to have some kind of telos or direction. It can't just be a pure absence. That's negative freedom, which, you know, as Dostoevsky diagnosed, that total unfettered freedom ends up in tyranny because in the end, it's the people who can exercise that freedom most who will be freest and everyone else will be a lot less free than them. Now, I think this is where we get on to virtue as the other side of freedom, or at least virtue as something that we don't really talk about in politics or public life much these days. But this is a concept which is crucial to understanding and realizing the post-liberal vision. So what sort of virtue are we talking about here? So I think virtue is something that, you know, instinctively all people know about. Because it's something that is a practice, not a theory. Courage is probably the most commonly understood virtue when people realize it's a virtue. And I think what's fascinating about courage is that everyone knows it when they see her, in themselves or in others, right? So it doesn't need much theory or, or, or conceptualization at all. And courage is really important because it illustrates a fundamental point, again, made by Aristotle, but I think a lot of people understand, which is that it's itself a radical middle way between two extremes. The extremes being recklessness, so an excess of courage. That means that in the end we do terrible things because we no longer pay attention to other people's you know, rights and freedoms and their dignity. Or a, a deficit of, of, of virtue, which would be cowardice. And, and, you know, it's not that, you know, anyone should be condemned for being a coward because it happens to all of us. But that cowardice, you know, in extreme situations, of course, you know, leads to terrible human suffering. But of course, justice is also right, a, a, a virtue, as is temperance, as is moderation, as are so many things. The social virtues of generosity, loyalty, a healthy respect for authority, parental authority in relation to children, etc., etc. right? The fact that the, the older generation should really command our respect and in that sense have moral authority. Not because they're always right, but because we owe them something, right? Just as they at some point will owe us, you know, maybe a debt of gratitude if we look after them. Social virtues are in some sense the, the glue that binds a society together. Without social virtues, you can't have functioning, vibrant societies. It will end up in a war of all against all. It's funny, you don't mention Confucius in the book, but I'm sensing that there's a very distinct Confucian strain to this as well. Very much so. Courage, character, authority, duty. A lot of these sound like distinctly masculine virtues, and I wonder to what extent post-liberal politics appeals very much more to young men versus highly educated, independent young women, who certainly, whenever Blue Labour is brought up, consider that to be a step back for them, that this can only mean insofar as it has anything to do with social conservatism, rolling back the freedoms that they've won as a set over the centuries. The first thing to say is, you know, emphatically, the post-liberalism that I develop and I defend is not anti-liberal. 
it doesn't start with the premise of let's roll back a number of rights and freedoms, right? Because once you start, it's a slippery slope. And again, you will end up in some form of tyranny where some people decide who enjoys which rights and which freedoms. And that can't possibly be a post-liberalism that, you know, I, I would ever defend. Because again, it will clash with the fundamental uh, sense of the intrinsic worth and value of the person, the dignity. That means, you know, a radical equality as well. And on the question of radical equality, I think it's interesting to Bru Labour's for a very long time, especially Morris Glasman, but also others, taken a very keen interest in forms of radical democracy where women have exactly the same rights and freedoms as men. For instance, the Rojava in Syria, who have built incredible examples of local democracy and self-rule, where women serve in the army as much as men, right? and they have all the same rights and, and freedoms. There's absolutely no you know, discrimination. But I think what, what that also recognizes is that when people have rights and freedoms, as all human beings should in equal measure, that, you know, what enables you to have those rights and freedoms is also a sense of obligation. That, for instance, we owe it to others right, to preserve their rights right, and their freedoms. That we owe it to the generations after us to leave behind a planet that is still inhabitable. In many ways, we have rights and freedoms because we also have duties. And it's the duties that beget rights and freedoms, actually. If we think about it anthropologically, now, that will, you know, alarm a lot of liberals, but actually that is how anthropologically these things work. So where then does a post-liberal politics take us in terms of lowering global temperatures, preserving species of animal and plant life, rewilding the biosphere and so on? I mean, besides, you know, the economy and, and society, clearly... Ecology is the, you know, most urgent task. And it's not the case for post-liberalism that this is somehow an add-on, you know, another challenge, another, you know, policy priority. Because ecology, you know, goes to the, to the very foundations of what makes us human. It's our relationship to nature, the fact that nature is not external to us, but that we inhabit it. And in some sense, it inhabits us. And that this intrinsic, organic relationship between humanity and nature needs to be understood before we even begin to think what the ecological crisis is, what climate change might mean, you know, and how we try and, and sort of deal with the kind of collapse in biodiversity. So I think, again, it's the, the anthropological and ethical dimension here that really matters because there is no humanity, there is no social life, you know, apart from or without nature. And all the utopias that somehow want to free us from that, free us from our bodies, free us from the natural environment, you know, of course, are, are so deeply sinister and misguided, precisely because they deny what is most fundamental. We have to make the environment, you know, a tangible reality that confronts us all. And we don't start the, you know, the conversation by talking about carbon emissions. Well, the tangible reality that confronts us currently is what's on our plate. So uh, in the spirit of being as pragmatic as we can be. Absolutely. Let's tuck in and, uh, and, and, and pause. So you refer more than once in the book to post-liberalism as moving towards the radical center. And to the extent that it's moving towards, you know, you do describe what we're living through currently as the interregnum. But centrism is surely the most doomed position of all, not least because every radical centrist we've seen in politics over the last decade has really just been an ultra-liberal. Um, what sort of coalitions there across the political aisle are necessary to make this radical centre a credible, sustainable, I suppose representative, 
and ultimately just progression on everything that has led us up to this point. So you're absolutely right to say that, you know, centrism has been completely tainted and, and discredited by the ultra liberal, ultra sort of progressive creed that has, you know, now taken over much of mainstream politics. But if we think of, you know, progressivism and ultra liberalism as one extreme, and then perhaps, you know, of national populism and authoritarianism as another extreme, then in between those two positions, there is a vast space. There's a very large spectrum. And the coalition we need is one between communitarian conservatives, pre-Thatcherite, pre-free market conservatives here and in the States and elsewhere, on the one hand, and if you like, ethical socialists, those who believe in mutualism, in sort of, you know, the whole labor tradition that isn't just a Fabian technocratic central state, on the other hand. And that coalition, you know, if you like, Burkeans and people who kind of follow Ruskin or, or William Morris, right? If we think of that coalition as the foundation of a post-liberal politics, then that is a completely different centrism from the liberal progressive one, right? There's absolutely no comparison. Um, it's only centrist insofar as virtue is, you know, a, a radical moderation between the extremes as we touched on earlier. Uh, it's only a centrism in that sense. It's not a centrism in the purely spatial sense of, you know, middle of the road, wishy-washy liberalism that then becomes quite radicalized, you know, in terms of recent... Uh, development. So, you know, that's what I mean by radical center. But, I, you know, a Jesse Norman, a John Crudders, a Danny Kruger, a Shabana Mahmood, you know, there's so many people who are in this space, economically radical, right, socially moderate. That is what I think the new politics is about. And that is, I think, a better way of capturing it than left on the economy, right on culture. Because right on culture can be quite extreme. Left on the economy, if you Corbyn, right, will be quite extreme. We're talking economically radical, that is, you know, a mutualist market that is social, right, and a kind of plural state that is democratic and, and about association and intermediate institutions and, and socially moderate in the sense of, you know, wanting to nurture the, the sense of belonging, belonging to place, to people, to community, to country. That is not the same as the culture wars that are currently being fought. You know, yeah, people will say, oh, it's the left that started it going back to the 60s. Others might say, oh, no, it's the reactionary right that keeps fueling the flames. I'm not interested in that. You know, I don't want anything to do with either. What I'm interested in is a sense of belonging that completely outflanks both. This book is an absolutely indispensable introduction. There is clearly everything to play for and a whole world to win. Thank you so much, Adrian, for joining me on this episode of The Booking Club and for bringing us to Balthazar for a wonderful meal this evening. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Thank you so much, Jack. I mean, first of all, I couldn't have hoped for a, a more engaging conversation. Wonderful company. Booking Club is a wonderful, wonderful thing and made thrive for a very, very long time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.